0: Welcome everybody to EPAR Trade Live, our tech seminar, and the title of this one is From Carburation to EV Propulsion, uh, AEM Electronics, Then and Now. And the speakers are John J.C. Concialdi, founder and chief engineer of AEM Performance Electronics, and race engine builder Stefan Papadakis, owner of Papadakis Racing in Carson, California. I'm John Kilroy, I'm uh, chief of content and audience development for EPAR Trade. Uh, This is our third episode of uh, EPAR Trade Live, and I have to tell you, I'm enjoying the hell out of them. It's really a great thing to get some of the top technical minds in uh, auto racing and just grab them for an hour and uh, pick their brains. So we're glad you're here for that. Uh, Just some quick housekeeping notes. Uh, All the webinar attendees are on mute and you're not on video, and we're going to keep it that way just to avoid any distractions or interruptions. And um, we want you to ask the questions here. So um, uh, just uh, use the chat option. And then when you use the chat option. You can write in a question there and just send it to us. You can start now. And then we'll put the questions over to JC and to Stephen. And somebody's kind of uh, online right now, so make a noise. Let's so check that out. Um, uh, so, uh, if you're new to Zoom and you're having trouble with Zoom, unfortunately, we can't help you with that. you have have to figure that out yourself or go to uh, www.zoom.us uh, in order to download software or whatever you need. And then, please note that this episode of EPartrade Trade Live will be recorded. We'll have it available for future viewing. Also, when it's over, we'll send you a, a kind of password so you can kind of view it uh, afterwards or share it with people at your uh, business. A quick note on Epar trade, it's a fantastic, robust digital platform for sourcing racing products and suppliers. So, Francis uh, Savignon and Judy Keane, uh, veterans of the racing industry for over 20 years, each of them, uh, they decided, they thought that, you know, we, we need to put the racing industry online. Every other industry is doing it. For us to be competitive, we just have to have the racing industry online, we have to make it easy, affordable, for you to shop the whole world for racing products and suppliers uh, at no charge. Uh, it's open 24-7. It's right there at your desktop or your uh, smartphone. And it's pretty fantastic. So we've got over 25,000 racing organizations. We vet them to make sure they're a real manufacturer of racing parts. So if you're not a manufacturer of racing parts, you don't belong, because your parts are gonna break in a race. So we have uh, the real deal in terms of suppliers we have racing buyers, and we have special race teams on board as well. And we just ask everybody to register to use e trade. It's like uh, registering for a racing trade show. Uh, we just wanna make sure it's an industry uh, only uh, kind of a program and uh, no real race fans allowed. And it's only for sourcing, it's not e-commerce. So we're not competing with either manufacturers or WDs or speed shops or engine builders or anybody like that. It's only for sourcing. It's a way for you to get a, a complete set of options and solutions to a technical issue uh, immediately uh, right from where you are. Okay, our speakers are again, John, John C. Consialdi, founder and chief engineer of AEM. And I mentioned this to John earlier, uh, AEM is one of my uh, favorite companies in the racing industry. I've been in the racing industry for about 30 years. And to see uh, a company just innovate year after year after year is just amazing. Because the pressure to be competitive is so great in auto racing. And the other thing I like about AEM is that um, I always think of it as a youthful company. So not only are they innovating, they're kind of bubbling up with new ideas uh, like a youthful company, but the young tuners of today, the young hot rodders of today, AEM is one of the biggest brand names uh, to today's generation of, of hot rodders. Because they're um, hot riding affordable sport compacts and and other types of cars, and AEM is the answer. The company's actually started in 1897, and it was the R&D department of Redline, uh, the import of Weber carburetors. So it's got a long history, but with John's guidance, it's just like a a young company just pushing the envelope. The product line is uh, electrical vehicle control units, CD digital dash displays, adapter harnesses, wideband UEGO air fuel controllers, high performance gauges, high flow fuel delivery, on and on. And the mantra at AEM is continuous improvement. And you really see that because they're coming out with products constantly. Uh, With Stefan Papadakis, he has an unmatched record of three Formula Drift Championship titles. So um, he's a formidable presence. And before that, he was uh, already big in in front wheel drive uh, drag racing. So it's really neat to have Stefan here. And then this is kind of a side note made for a lot of people, but Stefan is part of a rare list of race engine builders who become famous beyond the race teams. So you you take Keith Black, Ed Pink, Sonny Leonard, everybody knows them. Stefan has a YouTube following of over half a million viewers. So he, he stepped into a very special class of race engine builders. Um, he's got great, form- uh, formidable drift competitors on the team, Ryan Turk and Frederick, the Norwegian Hammer Sabo, and uh, they'll be driving 1,000 horsepower Toyota GR Supras this year. So thank you both for uh, joining us. And then I'll just start off with kind of a big overall question for you, C. When you looked ahead to this webinar within the, about uh, talking to the racing industry, is there any one thing in particular you looked ahead and you really wanted to stress this one perspective? Go ahead, John.
1: Um, as far as looking ahead, I guess one perspective that sticks with me most of the time is, um, you touched on it, is always to innovate and always to improve. And that improvement is something that we owe our customers. That, that's almost a requirement here because if we're going to be around, we have to change with the times Or will just be history. And so I just like to look
0: down the road as much as I can. Well, you do a great job of that. And and then, Stefan, just so everybody knows that there's maybe people here who aren't uh, in tune with drifting exactly. And we kind of were raised with kind of general understanding of engines and overtrack, road circuits, and drag racing. What's uh, the key goal when you put together a drifting engine? What's your key goal?
2: So with the drifting, it's not necessarily a race to the finish or having the car that's the quickest in the quarter mile or whatever. It it really is um, uh, the car staying sideways, having high speed around the track. We actually do have relatively high grip in the cars. So they do have high speed, and and the cars can be accelerated and decelerated relatively quickly by the drivers when they're doing the tandem. Uh, So we want a broad power band. Um from twenty-five or even three thousand up to you know eight thousand or even higher. Uh reliable, these things need to go for weekends at a time. We can't be t- switching engines every weekend. And uh typically now it's around the thousand horsepower range. And we tend to set up the power bands without being too peaky. So we want a relatively broad power band and then uh some over rev after the peak horsepower, and able to have so we have a very um again, broad power band for the driver.
0: Okay, very good. Now, I just picked a question from uh, the chat option. Again, go in the chat option and write down your questions and uh, we'll pose them to our speakers. So this is uh, JC uh, from Michael Antonelli. Uh, AAM a- 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 okay. B- is an innovator. If we don't have a vehicle that can use your Infinity products, which AEM a- a- product or products offer the best bang for the investment?
1: Well, that's a good one. Um, it, it depends what you're trying to do, you know, because yeah. sometimes uh, it could range from anything from a water meth injection system on a turbocharged vehicle where you're trying to get some timing back and get inlet air temps under control. Um, it could range to a UEGO sensor gauge if you're doing tuning. So the bang for the buck question is probably got to be focused to what is it you're trying to achieve, and then we have a variety of products that can fulfill whatever need uh, you have. So uh, we have tons of things that you can address, tuning and performance increases and fuel delivery and ECUs all in once.
0: Okay, and then um, let's uh, talk about the relationship between AM and STEP and let's give that some time because I, I don't immediately recall another manufacturing company having such a close relationship with a real single great race engine builder. So I ask this of both of you, but uh, JC, how did the relationship start and, and how do you work together with Stefan?
1: Um, well, okay. Well, I met Steph, I think when you were 17, right, at JG Engines and you had the Black Civic, I believe, Steph, and we did some tuning.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And even before that, when I was probably around 17 or 16, I was a customer of AEM. I had some carburetors, some side drafts on my, my, uh, my car and went into AEM and bought some jets.
1: Yeah. <laughs> we've known each other a long time so I gotta tell you uh, and again I hope this doesn't sound too terrible he's probably one of the brightest guys I've met this guy can do I could, you could throw anything at him and he'll tackle it and research it and sometimes he'll talk with me and sometimes I'll have an idea and he'll go you're crazy and sometimes I'll have an idea and I'll go oh that works pretty good you know. but the thing is you, as with anything you need to research it and dig deep and not just take any one person's opinion. Um, So, and Steph's done that. We've worked with him through the years with the racing. You know, he drove the drag car. He built the drag car after we, you know, turned that whole program over to him. So he uses our products and he'll critique them honestly, sometimes, you know, maybe a little honest, more honest than I'd like, but (laughs) it's valuable. You know, you have to be able to take it. You have to uh, go through the scrutiny of a hard evaluation so you can come back stronger. And I think we've been together, God Steph, 20 years almost, you know? Not not many partnerships. A lot of marriages don't last that long, i tell you that. And uh, not many business partnerships or racing partnerships uh, last that long either. You can even ask John Forrest about that lately because he's uh, just ended his. So it's been great. I mean, working with him is awesome.
0: And then Steph, on your side of the equation, it must be great to have a manufacturer when you're working on an engine and something pops in your mind to just call JC up and run and buy him.
2: Yeah you know I, I keep getting called an engine builder here and I do definitely build some engines but um a lot of our success really has to do with a group of uh resources I have and JC's definitely at the top of that you know if I have a question about whether it's engine bearings or rings or just theory you know I. John's an excellent mechanical engineer and beyond because he's always continued to study. Um, So you know, uh, it's nothing like just having an obscure question and being able to pick up the phone and call somebody and 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 not have the answer. Have an idea of give me uh, teach me of what that theory is behind you know a problem I have, and then be able to then research a little bit more into that theory and then hopefully come up with a good answer.
0: Very cool. Congratulations to both of you. It's it's, it's something to see. I'll I'll take a question uh, from uh, Damian King. Uh, Can anybody comment on whether there's going to be upcoming support for the gasoline direct injection engines with the Infinity family or ECU or will we see a new family of ECU being released for this?
1: Uh, Not for the GDI stuff at this point, no. Um, I have to tell you GDI is great and it's great for efficiency. Um, To be honest with you, I think we can achieve the same goals with port injection at this point. Um, Long term, obviously GDI is great for emissions, great for fuel economy and stuff like that. So I get it, I get why you wanna use it. In racing, maybe that's not quite as much a concern as making ultimate power uh, goes. And so we don't have any plans on doing infinity Uh, for GDI engines. And and to be honest with you, we're concentrating pretty heavily on the uh, vehicle control units for uh, EVs at this point.
0: Yeah, and let's uh, talk about that. We have a question from Ryan Anderson. And again, just click on the chat button at the bottom of the Zoom screen and uh, type in your question and and we'll, we'll throw it to our panelists. So Ryan asks, will EV swaps bring back the ease and convenience of carbureted engine swaps?
1: Won't be quite as easy as a carbureted engine swap because there's a lot more involved. I mean, with a carbureted engine, at least you had the infrastructure to support the fuel delivery and all that. So when you're trying to take a uh, car that has a conventional internal combustion engine and convert it to an electric power unit, there's a lot of infrastructure that has to go with it, like the battery and the inverter and all the vehicle controls and, of course, the electric motor and all that. I will say this, it's certainly going to make performance enhancements a lot easier and for the, nothing more than you don't have emissions to deal with. I mean, right now, you could take a modern car, mess with it, and when it comes time to register the car, you're not going to do it unless it's a, a race, you know, bespoke race car. Whereas with a EV swap, my guess is that the ARB is going to welcome uh, this type of conversion. And so that's going to make life a lot easier. And that's the whole thing we're doing at AEM right now is we're providing the means to do these swaps. You know, you could take a Tesla engine or a LEAF engine or a Volt or whatever, and we're taking the control unit and letting you interface with these very compo- various components on the electric car.
0: You know, we, we got a, a, a new product from you, and, and it was about an EV product. And I thought, well, I'll I'll put it out on our Facebook feed and just see what happens. Because I I didn't know how many people who are in the racing industry are really following the EV revolution. And it it really got a lot of play on uh, social media. So I think there's a lot of interest in it. And I just want to kind of ask you to expound a little bit more and I'll ask Steph this question. So when it comes to electric vehicles and competition, do you have a big view of what's about to take place cuz a lot of us don't know was that for me? Uh, or, well let's um, ask JC first. JC? Okay, um so
1: electric vehicles certainly have their place. They they're not for everything. Certainly I don't, I don't see a pure EV doing a 24 hours of leman unless they do a hot swap battery system which which may come into play, you know. Um But they certainly have their place and look at it with the Volkswagen IDR dominating Pikes Peak and various electrified cars doing short run high power events. I mean, we've been involved in an electric dragster. It's the first electric dragster to ever go over 200 miles an hour. And drag racing is kind of ideal. Uh, You're going to see some electric vehicles at Bonneville this week coming up. And um, that's another ideal place for it because it's a short run high power situation. And here's a cool thing. You're Bonneville. All the cars are suffering with the heat and a density altitude like 8,000 feet. The electric motor doesn't give a darn how what altitude you're at. You know, it's going to run as good at 8,000 feet as it is at sea level. You know, so there's definitely a place, definitely a place for it. Like anything, you need to choose your weapon wisely and then go to battle with it.
0: Okay. Yeah, I just, uh, it's funny when we talk about electric vehicles, I think within the racing industry, one thing that comes up all the time is if, if there isn't the sound of uh, the engine, of the internal combustion engine, we'll still keep fans. Do you, do you ever ask, people must ask you that question, John.
1: Oh, God. Uh, yeah, and, and listen, being a gearhead and being a gasoline guy, I get that. I, I totally get that because, and, and here's, here's a good example. When Formula One went to the V6 uh, hybridized engines, people complained about the noise. Fans actually complained about the noise. Some people um, embraced it. A lot of people didn't like it. But here's the thing. It grew on them. You know, so like anything, it's new. People don't like new initially, but people will eventually embrace the new because two things. You're not going to stop it. You're not stopping technology, I don't care who you think you are, you're not gonna do it. So get used to it, because it's coming down the road.
0: Yep. and, and Stephen, uh I'd like to answer the same question, when it comes to electric vehicles, and kind of a big perspective on what might happen in the next, in the course of 10 years, what, what do you see?
2: I think some of the technology there, applying it to the race cars, is I, I, it, hopeful, um, if we had, some electric motors helping to spin up the turbochargers to help, uh, you know, that low RPM lag, Uh, even a hybrid system where we could get some low end power and then really have these really robust power bands. I think that's exciting. Uh, As far as the show goes, I have seen it like Formula E and um, again with Formula One, uh, what JC is talking about. And I think it, it is less of a show because it doesn't have that cool sound, like that impact, you know, that, I think part of the show is you know, all the different senses. And for now, the sound that the electric cars make are just not very exciting to me. Maybe there'll be some other technology in the future that sounds different, uh, but for right now, I think it decreases the, the, the effect of the show at the moment.
1: Yeah. I and think the- if you look at a top fuel dragster, you go watch that happen, there's nothing beat, nothing in the world beats the feel and the sound of a nitro car going down the track. Steph and I were at uh, Vegas testing once and they had electric drag races. Remember that, Steph? Yeah. (laughs) It sounded like paint rollers going down the drag strip. That's all. Just you hear this tire on sticky pavement and it literally was about as boring as it got.
2: But you know what, I would say this, I do watch some Formula One and I can't appreciate some of the strategy that now comes in because if they're doing some laps or some corners where they're recharging batteries versus using the power, so then their lap times can vary quite a bit depending on their strategy and how they're using that uh, The hybrid system, for lack of a better term. Um, So I think that has helped some of the actually on track racing and strategy versus having the same lap times and similar power throughout the entire uh, race.
0: And then I can't go too far into this webinar without asking Steph about uh, half a million followers on YouTube. So there the may be race engine builders watching right now, and, and they just want to do what Steph did and get, go get a half a million viewers on YouTube. What did you do, Steph? How did that come about?
2: Yeah. So we, um, I had a you know a decision at some point where you know my our main work that we do is the racing team and going to the tracks and giving. Uh, value to our sponsors and, you know, just giving a good show and having fun at these different events. Uh, we'd happen to build our our engines. Um, haven't always. JC's been building some engines. We've had pigs build some engines in the past. But the last few years, we've been building this four-cylinder Toyota engine, makes 1,000 horsepower. It's very unique in the world of motorsports um, and the series as well because we don't have any rules. So we can have whatever displacement we want, however many cylinders, power adders, all that stuff. So we're not After these little incremental uh, changes to the engines that we don't want the competition to find out about. So I just said, you know what, let's just take apart one of our engines and show what we've got inside of this thing. And then that kind of turned into, okay, let's build another engine and show how we build these engines. And part of the build was And part of the breakdown and the tear down the engine was let's try to, I want the viewer to learn something from it. It's not just you know watching somebody work on an engine I had a voice I have a voiceover and tell you know what my what I know about the engine what I can teach somebody and this is not necessarily teaching people that are already racing engine builders it's about that middle group that that maybe someone that's new into wanting to rebuild an engine or you know, which I consider like the bigger um, audience of the YouTube so uh, it's why do they build the engine like this? Why do we build the engine like this? And just sort of explaining uh, as much as I, as much knowledge as I had, trying to put it out in the video. And I think people really resonate with that because, in my experience, that's what I like watching. Is I watch something because I want to learn from it. But if it's too far over my head, then I'm you know it turns into an instruction manual. And if it's too basic, then it's like no, I've already know these, this stuff. So trying to be in the middle.
0: I'm going to ask a follow-up question to that, too. Um, I, I feel uh, both of you are really in tune with a group of uh, pot rodders of today, tuners of today, um, that, that maybe other segments of racing don't quite understand. And, and what I'm saying is that, you know, I, I remember talking to everybody about, well, how can we get more young people to the short track? And how can we get more young people to the short tracks? And then Irwindale had a tuner event they had 10,000 people show up. So, there's one group of racing asking how to get more young people to the event, but then if you hold a certain kind of competition, well, the young people, you can't even find parking to get into the place. Uh, So, what is your advice for auto racing today, the sport, when it comes to these young people? Like, do you have any advice? And I'll start with you, Steph. Uh, What's really attractive to this group of uh, young people who, who, they love fast cars?
2: Yeah, so I will speak from my own personal experience, that if I'm into, if I have my street, street car, and I'm into modifying that car, I'm going to look around and see, try to follow, maybe on social or whatever, people that are modifying cars in similar ways than I am. To get some ideas, to, you know, be part of that group, or at least eavesdrop on that group. Um, and that kind of turns into some of those people, and those influencers, called for lack of a better term, might be doing events and so then those are tend to be street cars that are at racing events. So that's what we call like tuner events, right? They're tuning street cars. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, at the circle track, I feel like it's gone off into such an abstract vehicle that the car isn't like my street car anymore. It's just a race car. So, okay, so I, that's fine. The racing may be good, but I have to care about the driver, and I've got to care about that form of racing. I feel like one of those two things needs to happen, and I feel like the at least in my circles or at least what i follow i'm not interested in those particular drivers and take nascar for example i think there's a lot of interesting tech in nascar but they tend to not talk about that because it's all secret it's hard to even see under the hood of one of those cars so if i can't find out about the tech and i'm not into the drivers i don't care what driver necessarily wins then there really isn't that much for me there um but at some of the tuner stuff there may be so like we're talking about this friday night circle track stuff or the sprint cars or whatever, I don't know, like I'm not really into watching cars going around the track in the circle and I'm not really interested in the drivers and the cars are so different than anything that I work on. And even if it was similar, they're not really talking about the tech. So there really isn't a component for me to be interested in that form of racing.
0: That's really good. And and that touches on something I've thought a lot about is that uh, there are certain segments of racing that have moved away from the tech part of things and they've they've specified the cars and, and they've kind of reduced innovation and I think that really harms uh, the interest level that a lot of people have in auto racing if you remove the tech part of the story i I think the driver's story is fine uh, but and the, the level of competition is great but uh, You know what's under the hood is an internal question in the racing business, and I think we still need that to keep people interested. Yeah. So So, let me.
2: Yeah. So as IndyCar moved from, you know, fifty or sixty years ago, these experiments on who can do the five hundred the quickest, different engines, different chassis, everything, and you know maybe somebody wins by ten laps, I'm okay with that. I'm interested in seeing how the race folds out. Maybe they blow up and wrap you know, just before the finish, because did, did that crazy technology didn't work. But as they've gone to this homogenous, you know, spec series, essentially, with two engines and one chassis, it's not interesting to me anymore. And I'm afraid that, you know, NASCAR, there was a lot of interesting tech there in the background. But as they go to, I think, one chassis and one transmission and maybe a couple of engines or three engines, again, I think it loses the tech. And then now it's just drafting for... Three hours at an oval.
0: Yeah, there's, there's one uh, really well known, respected race engine builder who just uh, now loves Bonneville. Because when he goes to Bonneville, there's no rules. Go as fast as you want. And uh, that, that kind of says something, kind of where we're at. And, and JC, I want to put the question to you as well. I feel AEM is really in touch with uh, the, the younger uh, performance enthusiasts. And as uh, this Kind of wanted your advice is if you see like racing could do more for that performance enthusiast to, to get him behind the wheel of a race car
1: well you, you got a kind of a dichotomy there because racing's a business and yeah. so they have to have an appeal to a broad audience and that broad audience is too you know there's the spectator the guy that wants to watch people go in circles and they have their drivers they root for and stuff like that and that's that's what keeps racing alive is money and TV rights and all that. In my opinion, that's kind of a bummer because I'm a tech guy and I'm with Seth. I'd rather look under the hood. I'm interested in what makes the car tick. But I think we're the minority in, in the particular group of people watching this webinar. We're not the minority. But as a whole, sadly, we are the minority. I, I personally gravitate towards a small, I, mean, I love Bonneville because it's, Anything goes, man, what you could dream up, and with safety reasons, what we could dream up, you could run, which is great. All the lower class of like, uh, you know, drifting, like Steph said, no rules on engines. So let it fly and do what you can do to make it work. I think it does a bit of a disservice to the automotive industry for sanctioning bodies to homogenize their uh, engines parts because it kills innovation a lot of times that innovation does make its way to the general public and so I, i think in that regard we've kind of hurt ourselves in the racing world but thank god for the smaller series like like drift or bonneville or even you know i love wec because wec is open to a lot of different ideas and they kind of let them run a little bit wild, not crazy, but they go a little wild. I remember a while back they were doing alternate fuels and they were doing a ton of stuff when we were in that gasoline, one of the many gasoline crises, and they are playing with a lot of alternate fuels, which to me, I'm a a fuel junkie. So I love the fact that they were doing different fuels
0: and stuff like that. So
1: I I like the small series, I like the tech. Let me ask a a question from uh,
0: people writing in their questions uh, via chat. So this is for both uh, J.C. and Stefan. As industry leaders, do you see performance hybrids being uh, the new standard for performance vehicles the next five years, Uh, four-wheel drive without the traditional longitudinal drive shaft? Uh, Any thoughts there, J.C.?
1: Totally. (laughs) Um, Hybrids have a place. And, And look at some of the new hypercars that are made by Ferrari and McLaren and people like that. They've hybridized some of their most expensive cars. And, and again, let's go back to what this brings to the table for the everyday user. They don't have price constraints. So they can experiment and do things like Formula One and all that, that the technology from those innovations where you have no constraint does make it down to us eventually, you know, with a hybridized car. Problem with hybrid cars, you have a hybridized system, it adds mass. To me, mass is death. I'm not a big fan of adding weight to anything excepting my stomach, and that's about it. Um, But it's not a good thing. So it has a place. I think it can be used to cover up some holes. Hell, I drive a hybrid car back and forth to work these days, and it certainly has a place in my life. Does it have a place in racing? Absolutely, it has a place in racing. Look at the Porsche 918 Spyder that just destroyed WC Racing for the longest time, and went and obliterated Nurburgring record too, and beat the old 917. So, definitely has a place. And again, choose the application. If you're doing a lightweight sports car, maybe not. You know, maybe that's not the way to go.
0: Okay, Stefan, I'll throw that to you too. Um, As industry leader, do you see performance hybrids being uh, the new standard for performance vehicles in the next five years? What are your thoughts, Stefan?
2: Yeah, I think next five years might be a little bit optimistic. Uh, The aftermarket really needs to catch up and have relatively easy to install and easy to tune modular systems that we can add to our competition cars or our street cars. Right now, everything is, uh, it's, it's challenging, if not impossible, to add some hybrid system to a current setup that we have right now. There'd be a huge amount of development on the mechanical side and the electronic side and the control system side to where you'd be turning into some development team and the cost would be so high that you'd lose sight of trying to win events and you'd be off on this weird tangent of a development and, and uh, I don't think it would necessarily net better results in the short term.
0: Yeah. yeah, very good. Okay, another question, and I'm taking this question from our audience, so just type in your questions in the chat option at the bottom of the Zoom screen. So JC, um, it's kind of a long question. Infinity is a great platform and very high speed, but has a, a few details that might be upgraded in order to be perfect. And uh, what about uh, map sensor sampling frequency? Uh, it Does not match engine speed frequency, and this caused weird waves and readings, especially with race cams, uh, obliging the tuner to apply high filtering to the signal. Would it be possible to set up a feature that matches engine speed in order to avoid cam manifold pulsation? To full map reading, uh, so that that one's above my pay grades, uh, JC. Okay, so
1: here's a question I'm gonna ask back, and and here's what it comes down to. Yeah, certainly. First off, we're not the the Infinity is a mature product, so it's it's pretty much done on its development cycle. So that's the short answer. But let's let's get into it a little bit. Why do you need to change and follow map frequency that fast? When you look at how an engine traverses an RPM range, you know, so you cover so many thousand RPM per second of time. Is really getting down to the millisecond change gonna be beneficial to your engine as you sweep through that engine RPM range? I would propose that you can have some misfueling occurring because you're gonna have some latency in the way the injector responds and the way the ECU responds and all that. So if you see a map pressure change, in one millisecond, and in the next millisecond, the ECU has made its change and adjusted, well then the next pressure change has occurred as well. So you're always gonna be a little bit behind. So it, to me, filtering is actually beneficial because it's gonna make a much smoother operating engine. I don't think chasing that detail has a lot of benefit. Okay, all
0: right. And then JC, I'd like to ask you another question. Uh, so when we go on uh, the AM performance, lecture, electronics showcase on EPAR trade we see 37 items of content so we can look up AEM new products AEM popular products videos technical papers give a fantastic showcase and to me it's like walking into a gigantic trade show exhibit and you get to pick and see what you're curious about and just kind of go through AEM
1: well, but we'll is there
0: think, one or- <laughs> say that again
1: hey so we'll thank Lawson Mollica for that one
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay yeah thank you Lawson but is there a one or two new products like right now, recently uh, from AM that you'd like to talk about in this webinar?
1: Well, we have the vehicle control unit for the EV, we have the uh, key touchpad, and we're just going to introduce a new version of our uh, water methanol nozzle. So, you know, uh, when you first did the introduction, you talked about always innovating, and we had a water methanol system that is really popular, actually, it does quite a good job. But as we look at our product, we'll always look at it with a critical eye and say, what can we do better? So we've just introduced a new nozzle. So the control system, everything else is the same right now, but it's a new nozzle. And the main benefit of it is people would have a road race car, like they have an Evo with a turbo on it. And they go to do a time attack event, and they'll burn through a gallon of water. And by the time they're getting to the last lap, they're out. Well, now the new nozzles are so efficient that we're able to get the exact same cooling but with about 40 percent less fluid so now you're not going to be on that last lap wondering if you're going to do it so we're always looking to improve things you know and you got to keep in touch with our website to see what we're introducing you're going to see a video coming out about that that we just shot yesterday so kirk will be uh kirk will be the head man on that one um the ev controls are taking off and we're gaining a lot of traction. As I mentioned before, we've done projects with Steve Huff with the Dragster and Ford Motor Company. And um, I can't remember Pat's last name up in Washington. They did a, the Cobra Jet 1400 Mustang. And I think that thing went eight thirties at 170 and a quarter mile with uh, four electric motors. It, it, to what you, when you get back down to the noise question that Steph we talked about a little bit ago, This Mustang, if you can imagine, it's got electric motors and it idles. So you see this electric Mustang pull up to the line idling, and he's got a transmission. So he puts the thing on a brake. The the launch of this car is uncanny. I can't believe the axles and tires even stay on the car with how hard that thing comes out. You know, so um, yeah, we have a lot of cool stuff coming out.
0: Yeah, I think uh, instant torque has to be an attraction of uh, electric vehicles.
1: (laughs) Interesting, that's for sure. And
0: and then, uh, Stefan, I wanted to ask you about, uh, you you built a thousand horsepower Toyota GR Supra. And uh, again, your followers followed along with you. And and I thank you also for for capturing that audience, because in, in the old days when there was just print magazines, Young guys needed the print magazines to encourage them that uh, Going racing tuning up your car going faster. It was doable that it, it could be done So number one, thank you for sharing that information and providing education encouragement some motivation for the young people out there to kind of get better get faster and that just benefits all of us selling parts in the industry but uh, when you put together the, that uh, Toyota Supra what was the biggest challenge in developing that car? Because it was the car and the engine. It was actually a total project. What was your biggest challenge, Stephen?
2: The biggest challenge was, yeah, new car, new platform, new engine, and there not really being any parts available in the aftermarket. And that's where the you know, benefit of just having a big network and a lot of really smart friends uh, helped with the build. So I talked to JC several times about, you know, whether it was, uh, the engine, like talking about like what we're we doing with the head gasket, piston rod design, cam, valve train, um, and then just taking our experience from what we've done before, trying to really look at what uh, Toyota and, and the designers have done with that engine and the car, and then saying, okay, let, let me back up by saying we've had a we we will le- reach limits of what the factory has designed sometimes. And then we will say, okay, we've broken this or we're limited by you know this connecting rod or the head gasket or whatever. And then we'll work on modifying that to make it stronger and then kind of moving forward from that. But we've also run into trouble where we say, this thing might not work and then going and changing it and modifying it. And then the, our new design not working initially and then have, causing our own trouble. So we try to balance um, modifying the things that we're sure won't work with not modifying the things that we're not sure, you know, about, right? So it's like playing this this game uh, with just, you know, sometimes you got to roll the dice with what the factory designed. And as the cars become better engineered, we've had way better results and better luck with um, trusting what the engineers have designed. Unfortunately, with the 2020 Supra, it was like their premier vehicle. It was in, in uh, partnership with BMW. It's a it's an engine and a chassis that they're planning on using for a long time. And a lot of what was designed there worked really well and didn't require a lot of modifications. Or if it did, um, again we work work we went to our resources like JC and others um, and uh, designed parts that we were had worked well in other applications, we we kind of used that experience for this new car build.
0: Okay. Well, that that was exciting and it captured the attention of hundreds of thousands of people. Congratulations on that. Uh, I'll take another question for you, JC. Has AEM, and just so you know, because we're on the internet, we can have people here from around the world. So has AEM been interested? In introduction of hybrid power into the BTCC in 2022. And the BTCC is a British Touring Car Championship. Yeah. I, I don't know if you're related to that at all, uh, JC, but what do you think?
1: I love BTCC, by the way. Yeah. Um, I've been a follower of it for quite a while. Um, they're great. They're, that's, that's European NASCAR. Um, yeah. So as far as the I would love to do hybridized powertrains, to be honest with you. I I personally, and this is on a personal note, I'm probably going to get some hell at work about this, but I actually prefer that over pure electric for a lot of reasons because it's got some longevity to it, right? Whether we do anything with it, I don't think that's going to happen. We certainly could control the engine. I know BZ BZ Azrahoa has done a lot of integration with our ECUs, in various hybridized cars that he's done. And to be honest with you, he's done that pretty much on his own and uses our equipment to do that job. But I like it. It's just not something we're going, it's not on our radar right now, that's for sure.
0: Okay, now I'll ask you a follow-up question, JC. So uh, this is from Quinn. Uh, What about the new cars? I have experience with Ford uh, not being able to handle the heat from a track day. I know the Hyundai is the same, ECU turns everything down when it gets hot. That's the question, does that register with you, JC?
1: Totally, yeah, yeah, because it's, the job of the ECU is to protect the engine. You know, so if you you can, you can tune an ECU to do anything you want it to do. You can tune it so you disregard any warnings or any heat notices, or you can tune it to a point where it'll take measures to, protect the car. So the the ECU doesn't control how hot your car gets. It controls the fans and stuff like that. But thermal management of the fluids or the intake air or anything like that, that's all up to the car designer. What the ECU can do is react to the circumstances that it detects while you're operating the car. As far as actual ECU itself goes, the actual ECU temperature goes, I always mount any electronics where I want to live. Electronics don't like heat, that's just the way life is. So, put the computer in the car where you are. That way, if you're hot, the computer's hot and you'll be nice to it.
0: Okay, and here's another question for you, JC. Uh, Does AM plan to make a full control system for gas engines? In parentheses, it says ECU plus PDM plus keypad, like EV. Uh
1: AEM ev is the first foray into the keypads and the PDMs and that will eventually make its way down to integration into the, uh, the Infinity series. It'll all be done through CAN. So we have CAN uh, connection through both of those devices so I, I'm sure it'll make its way down there.
0: Okay and then I've had questions that people have uh, offered here and I had this question too and it's and just go into it as in-depth or not as in-depth as you want, but it has to do with the pandemic and, and how we're all getting through this pandemic. So uh, for JC, how, how's AEM doing this pandemic and any advice for racing businesses to get through this thing?
1: <laughs> Stay safe, be healthy. Um, yeah. As far as AEM goes, and this is kind of odd, and I hear this from t- a lot of people is currently, Our business is as good as it's ever been. It's actually better than it's ever been. And maybe people are staying home and working on their cars. Thank God they are, if that's the case. You know, you have to be sensible about the pandemic. We, the engineering, I mean, I'm talking to you from home at the moment. And a lot of the engineering staff that doesn't need to be at work, they stay at home when they can. And then if we have a test or something that requires our presence, then we go into work and... and to be honest with you, Greg is Greg and the the gang at AEM have taken extraordinary measures to protect the employees and people uh, from this COVID situation. It's it's sad, but you know for us it's not hard to socially distance, and we have people cleaning that place continuously. We've we've gone really a long way. So, for your business to survive, you have to survive first. And then after you survive, then you could address, you know, getting out to your customers and stuff like that.
0: Now, I'm, I'm very grateful that racing figured out a way to at least get the cars back on the track, even though the fans can't be in attendance uh, many, many times. But uh, at least the cars are rolling. And uh, they've been able to do that without creating any controversy, which is a, a big success, I think, for racing. Did and then for so- people- oh go ahead, JC.
1: I just think about it. Car being involved in cars is great social distancing. I mean, think about it, you do a cruise. You're certainly six feet away from each other. you're certainly not breathing everyone else's air. So to me, car clubs and uh, motorsport events, provided they're held in a safe way to do it, that, what a great release. What a good thing. You're stuck in your house. Go out for a drive. you know, go out and enjoy what we have and don't let this get you down.
0: Very good. And Stefan, I'd like to just ask you, I'm not trying to pry or anything, but uh, we have interest in it. So uh, how how does the, how are you doing within pandemic? And then any advice for other race engine building companies out there?
2: Yeah, so uh, they've delayed the form of the drift season. Uh, We're initially set to start at Long Beach in April. They canceled the Long Beach Grand Prix. So, uh, I mean, obviously everything was canceled. So Uh, We're planning to have our first event in 2020 in September, on September 3rd in St. Louis. And uh, we'll use a portion of the NASCAR track and a portion of the infield. And it's set up to be, uh, to have, we're going to go whether they allow fans or without. And because it's at a very large NASCAR track, even if they have a very low, like 25% uh, capacity, and we're fine with having, you know, five or 10,000 fans because really are, are, we have a very strong live stream. And then we also have some television so much, so much, and also all the social media and, and so much of that content uh, that just gets created from those events. We don't necessarily need to have a lot of people in the stands to have a successful series. So starting in September, we're going to have, um, instead of eight rounds at eight weekends, we're going to have four weekends. Uh, each with double headers, so we'll still be able to handle uh, all, all of our four or I'm sorry, we'll have four weekends each with double headers, so we'll still have eight rounds of competition and we'll have the full championship, uh, but with, with, with less traveling. Okay. So, we're going to go to St. Louis, Dallas, uh, Seattle, and then Irwindale, California. Okay.
0: Uh, good luck with that. It sounds like a great plan. And um, again, the the followers of Drift are just fanatics. So uh, I'm sure you'll maintain the following. Yep, Uh, and then as far as what we're doing as a team internally
2: is we've kind of pivoted a bit and we've said, okay, we're going, obviously we're gonna do these events, but we also wanna make sure that we're creating content within the team. So continuing to to do YouTube videos that people are interested in, uh, Instagram posts, uh, Facebook, um, and just, and, and c- building as much uh, content that we can share with our partners. So making sure that their parts and the car with the decals and stuff like that and using their parts are, are profiled in the different content that we're creating. And also um, if we do any kind of private test sessions, uh, we'll go and film and and uh, share those as well.
0: Fantastic. Okay, I have a, another question I'll run by JC from Cody Goldstrand. From the inception of the Infinity, a dealer had to be trained by AEM to sell the ECUs. And this was to ensure the dealer could properly support the product line. What is the plan and time frame to build the dealer and knowledge network for the AEM EV line? JC?
1: It will be similar. Will, you know, in order for us to be successful, the customers got to be successful. So we're going to have to teach them how to do it. So I'm sure it's going to be a very, very similar obviously with COVID happening, we're not doing anything like that right now. Uh, So until that problem resolves itself, we may end up having to do um, something like this, like we're doing here, do zoom meetings and maybe teach uh, our potential clients via zoom until we can get them live and personal. Um, I wish I could show you the dyno setup we have for the EV stuff because it would be really cool to uh, share that. And hopefully we'll do that in the future when we can see, some test equipment that you guys could really enjoy.
0: It's going to be fun ten years from now to remember this conversation, because uh, AEM is one of the few companies which we can talk with which we can talk about EV in the racing industry, and uh, it would be interesting ten years from now. I I remember AEM was the only one talking about this. So uh, good luck with everything.
1: Ten years and, from and, now, we'll be doing hydrogen fuel cell stuff and of yeah. that. <laughs>
0: Um, And then, JC, I I want to um, ask, when I investigated AEM a little bit more for this webinar, there's always a lot of philosophy that comes with AEM, more than just the technical side of things, but a philosophy of how you arrived at these products. And so I just wanted to ask you to describe your approach to developing uh, AEM as a company and and as a... Creating this great product line, you, have, you obviously have the philosophy.
1: Yeah, we do. Um, for, and first off, I'll preface it with this: this isn't all me, at all. the The team at that, the team there, and here's people have heard me say this time and time again. Oh my God, I'm working with the best team I ever have, and they'll say, "Oh, you said that, you know, two years ago." Yeah, you're right. And guess what? It's morphed into even better, and it just gets better and better. And you, you, in life, you learn things and you learn how to get the right people on the right team, and and it's going to sound gratuitous, but it is genuinely the best group of people I've ever worked with, so do I have all the ideas? No, of course not. You know, Kirk keeps his eyes on what people are talking about out in the field, and you know, he'll point things out and say, hey, look, you know, I'm starting to get inquiries about certain things. Certainly, we come up with stuff, you know, we've No baseball player bats a thousand. We certainly haven't. We've developed some things in house that we thought were really awesome. And they were clunkers. They're probably going to throw them on my coffin when they bury me. But other things, you know, we've sat down and gone, you know, we're going to make this, there's a hole in the market. And that hole could be from the lack of a product or the hole could be the product that is at a reasonable price. That's attainable because if you make a product that no one could buy then what value has it, you know? So then, we, you know, the fuel pumps, we developed them. Other pumps were really pricey, for no reason. And so we we started developing pumps. Then we started to work with our suppliers there. And I, I consider suppliers not just suppliers. I consider them technical partners. If you have a good relationship, they'll work really hard for you. You sell what they make for you, and it all works out really, really well. So we went ahead and, and started making them ethanol and methanol compliant. And we worked with the supplier to do it. So it's not a, a, any one philosophy, it's kind of keeping your eyes open and watching trends and seeing what's going on. And even EV stuff, we've been working on it for quite some time. And to be honest, when at PRI last year, the whole thing at work was, oh my God, I cannot wait to see people's face when we launch this thing, it's gonna be crazy. And indeed it was, you know, so yeah. yeah, it's a it's an amalgam of thought, I think.
0: Well, thank you. It's uh, really a uh, words worth uh, thinking about for anybody running a business. And, and Steph, I'd like to ask you a kind of similar question. Um, do you have a kind of a guiding philosophy and how do you run the, the race engine business? It's really a tough business and just to keep the doors open year after year is hard for everybody and uh, not let alone go out there and win races. So, so how would you describe your philosophy to all this, Stefan?
2: Uh, it would be, so we're in the business of, I think we're in the business of eyeballs. We're in the business of getting exposure for the companies for ourselves and the companies that we work with and need to be in tune on where those trends are changing and or or headed and also make sure that we are, personally interested and believe in the same that same thing so for years we did front wheel drive drag racing it was very popular you know around 2000 and then uh, as NHRA Sport Compact started getting bigger I thought that you know you know now we need to be the fastest cars on track so we've kind of transitioned a bit to rear wheel drive you know tube chassis cars in the NHRA Sport Compact and and uh and then as you know that I started getting a little bit Maybe turned off on the drag racing stuff or burnt out. You know, the drifting stuff was coming up, and I started seeing a lot of interest and in just friends and even myself. And so, started learning and and we actually pivoted and transitioned to to drifting. Um, and we're still are there now. Uh, but you know, four or five years ago, at least, uh, probably closer to ten, you start seeing a lot of you know eyeballs in social media and uh, Facebook. And uh, started focusing on creating content and stuff there. And I think, you know, as Facebook made that changes after the last election um, and companies and stuff started having less traction on Facebook, I uh, started, you know, seeing, okay, I think YouTube might be a place that, you know, a lot of eyeballs are headed. And and I was watching a lot of YouTube myself learning how to do stuff. And, you know, again, pivoted there and, and started making um, content on YouTube. Uh, so, you know, if I say that the the... Successes we had that was kind of the successes, Uh, but we also had some things that didn't really always that didn't pan out so You know seven or eight years ago with the off-road short course off-road series I thought for sure those things would be in stadiums because I grew up watching Mickey Thompson off-road And we built an off-road truck and started going to the short course races and it just didn't really go anywhere and even today There's having some some struggles trying to expand that series and they're not in stadiums today so we spent some money, um, but I also had a ton of fun. I mean, the most amazing racing that I did was the short course truck off road. Uh, but, th- but that, again, that, that, that didn't go anywhere, um, at least as far as a, a profit center for the racing. Um, so you kind of, you know, like JC was saying, you kind of, maybe a company that's building products has different ways they go with the products and some really succeed and some don't. And for us, it's where we are creating content and where we're getting excitement for the things that we're doing. Um, and I really need to have an eye on what's hot now and what might be hot in the future.
0: And just real quick, uh, it's really hard for race engine builders to, to find people who are as meticulous about the work as you are as the owner of the company. Uh, any secrets to finding good people out there?
2: Well, you know, I I had a, a, a tuning shop years ago around year, you know, 99, 2000 and, um, it was difficult because you know we thought i wanted to work for myself but in reality i didn't work for myself i worked for every person that came into that front door or potential you know everybody that you know called in and wanted work um, and it was challenging finding people that would pay for the level of quality and time we put into this because you know it, it's a lot of a lot of time and it costs us, uh and it, and it can cost the customer a lot of money uh, after I realized that maybe it wasn't a direction I wanted to go, I started moving into the the, the motorsports, and now we have, you know, eight or a dozen customers, which are you know our clients, our partners that we work with, like AEM, and uh, we want to make sure that we're servicing them well, and that would be making sure that we're getting them good exposure, and it's aligning with just like you would align with a customer that has values and has uh, maybe goals for their projects. And then you can help supply that with your products. We have companies that we work with that have goals and it's, you know, really being interested in the motorsports and the builds that we do and making sure that we can organically use the components that they manufacture in our builds and show that they make quality, you know, parts. And, and this is one of the ways that you can use them.
0: Very good. we're getting to uh, the one hour mark so I want to ask you, Stefan, first, and I'll ask JC, uh, before we wrap this up, is there something we haven't talked about that, that you wanted to share with the, the racing industries? Some thought that you wanted to come up, and we haven't mentioned it yet. Any last thoughts, Stefan?
2: Um, you know, I think there is, a, you know, a split here between the grassroots and, like, maybe the maximum size that that exposure can be versus trying to go into like the mainstream, the big, the Indy 500, some of the big NASCAR events, you know, things like that. And I, I don't, and they, and uh, I think they are a little bit different. So I talk a, a lot about the grassroots level stuff in the tuner market, and, um, and maybe some of my strategies don't necessarily work in the bigger, really big motorsports like NASCAR and, and, and Indy 500 stuff, uh, but you know, I don't know if there's anybody from, you know, these companies and, you know, some of these series sanctioning bodies and really try to maybe hopefully embrace some of the grassroots or a lot of the grassroots and help educate us and help us give us a product that we're really interested in either purchasing or watching. And I think that making sure that you're embracing the grassroots and having that as a foundation to build on, to go into, to the, to the broad market, um, I think, think would be potentially beneficial
0: i think that's a great idea and, and when it comes to grassroots i mean that's the source of our sales in the industry i mean we love the top of the pyramid and that's a lot of fun but it's, it's a young guy in high school who just wants to go fast I, I think that's our our. it's always been our future
2: yeah and i almost think it's like an up- upside down pyramid where the grassroots is the bottom and that's the smaller and then as you start building it you can really start broadening your uh the funnel, the bigger funnel to bring more people and customers in.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Very good. And, and JC, uh, I'll throw it over to you. We're, we're winding down. Is there anything we haven't talked about that you want to talk about?
1: Uh, we've touched on a lot of stuff. I honestly, I, I agree with stuff on the grassroots thing. And as far as what we haven't talked about, um, I would just say, listen, you know, if you have something you want to do, we, we started at 8 a.m. in 87 and it was scary. And by all means, uh, I think if you have something you want to do, whether it's racing or starting a business or something like that, uh, you should just not be afraid of it and do it. And that's kind of what my parting shot would be. That, and I got to tell you, uh, just as a side note, is I, I do use I have you guys uh, part trade on my feed at work, and I've dug up a handful of really good uh, parts and products, stuff I didn't know about, and. I was able to get some, I have a personal project. Some of you guys know about my student Baker and uh, I've done a lot of sourcing for that poor thing on your website. So I got to thank you for that too.
0: Well, thank you mu- uh, very much for that. Um, you know, I, I, I'm partial, but I've enjoyed EPARTRAE right from the beginning when Francis first showed it to me. And I think if, if you're a little bit nervous about any kind of new digital platform, just get on EPARTRAE, start, Plunking around and, and pressing buttons and, and going places. And pretty soon you get the feeling you're shopping the whole world for racing parts and, and that's really fun. So I, I want to thank you, JC. I want to thank you, Stephen. Uh, this has been really fun. It's another great episode of ePartrade Live. We'll have it available for future viewing pretty soon, either today or tomorrow. We'll have uh, the uh, link available to where you can watch it on uh, ePartrade. And uh, then our next episode of ePartrade Live will be Wednesday, August nineteenth at nine a.m. Uh, we're going to work with SuperTech. Uh, they make great valves for racing, and it'll be about valve technology. So uh, put that on your calendar, and we'll be promoting it over the next uh, couple of weeks. So okay, that brings us to a close. Thank you all for being here for another episode of EPAR Trade Live. Thank you, JC. Thank you, Stefan. We'll see you
1: Thanks later. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Cheers. Cheers.